It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Monday, February 6th. I'm Kelly Reese and this is your KVMR Evening News. The California Report travels to the rural Central Valley community of Planada to see last month's storm's ramifications firsthand. Then, National Native News takes a look at the most recent court proceedings surrounding the Indian Child Welfare Act. We have your local news and weather forecast before a special edition of Soups On. KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza and intern news producer Julia Jem fill us in on Nevada County Board of Supervisors' three-day workshop. That's all coming up in the next half hour. This is the California Report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. When storms battered California last month, the streets of Planada became rivers, hundreds of homes flooded, and the whole town was evacuated. Now people in this rural Central Valley community are trying to put their lives back together. But as KQED's Vanessa Rancaño reports, many undocumented residents are struggling to access assistance. A note that we're only using first names for the undocumented people in this story to protect their privacy. Husband and wife Rufino and Esmeralda came to Planada 15 years ago in search of better opportunities. They worked in the local fields. Almonds, grapes, figs, tomatoes. They saved up to start a small business selling popsicles and snacks. The flood took out everything, their livelihood and much of their home. Rufino stands in his driveway assessing the mold starting to grow on the still damp seats of his ice cream truck. Oh no, un desastre aquí, no, aquí tiramos todos los freezer, estaban llenos de mercancía, los tenía bien llenos yo. He says the water destroyed five commercial freezers full of merchandise, plus the truck, around $23,000 in damage. Inside the house, Esmeralda points out cabinet drawers warped from the water. Aquí todo estaba lleno de agua, mire cómo estaba todo, lleno de lodo. For now, Rufino and Esmeralda have moved into an apartment at a migrant farmworker housing complex on the edge of the town. They're among 40 families temporarily relocated there. Like many other undocumented immigrants in Planada, they still haven't gotten significant financial help. Overall, early estimates showed nearly a quarter of the homes here were impacted. All day, people drive down the main street in trucks loaded with beds, sofas, refrigerators. They unload everything into dumpsters lining the road. I think all these dumpsters have people's lives in it. From the sidewalk, longtime resident Alicia Rodriguez looks on. The losses are especially painful for a community where the poverty rate is almost three times the state's. Rodriguez is one of the local volunteers collecting and distributing donations. Clothes, socks, shoes. She's running a makeshift resource center out of a vacant commercial space. Air mattresses for those that are sleeping on the floor. We're going to be doing microwaves. But the big help, the kind that will rebuild a damaged home and replace its contents, that's left to private insurance or federal disaster assistance from FEMA. And, Rodriguez says, many residents here can't turn to either. They're slipping through the cracks. Because to get help from FEMA, you need a social security number. And local leaders estimate as many as half of residents in Planada are undocumented. What I see here is that a lot of them are not going to probably get the FEMA because they're not applying. Down the street from Rodriguez's donation center, a weary-looking mechanic named Eduardo is crouched beside a car, changing a tire. Vivo en la esquina de ahí de la tienda de la Broadway Market. Ahí nos pegó toda el agua. 
The house he rents with his wife and five kids is half a block from here, in the epicenter of the destruction. During the flood, the water was almost waist high in his house. Creo que nos llegaba casi a la cintura. His family just bought new furniture and appliances six months ago. They don't have insurance. No podemos rescatar lo que con tanto esfuerzo compramos. Eduardo's heard FEMA can help cover these losses, but he figures he's not eligible because he's undocumented. Se me complica a mí un poco, pues no tengo seguro social. Federal and local officials say undocumented residents can get help as long as someone in the home has a valid social security number. In Eduardo's case, he could apply through his U.S.-born kids. So we strongly encourage those individuals to take advantage of the opportunity and come open a claim. Sharon Wardale Trejo is a spokesperson for the county who's been trying to get that message out. In the first two days after FEMA opened a recovery center in Planada, she says a total of 45 households filed claims. She sees that as progress. So we're seeing an incremental increase as probably the word gets out there that, hey, you know what, it was okay, and they were able to help me. But for some, that help is out of reach. In what's left of Rufino and Esmeralda's living room, they point out their son's high school diploma, one precious possession the floodwaters spared. He's a freshman at UC Berkeley, in many ways living out the promise that brought them to this country. But their American-born son can't help them here. Because he's no longer at home, they can't use his social security number to apply for aid. Rufino says he's the reason they want support, to help him get ahead. They tried multiple times to get help from FEMA and the Small Business Administration, but got turned away. For those of us who don't have papers, there's no assistance, Rufino says. If they can't get aid, he says they'll have no choice but to go back to working in the fields. They'll keep looking for help. They were told to turn to charitable organizations. But so far, he says, all they've gotten is a $250 gift card. That was KQED's Vanessa Rancaño reporting from Planada. She joins me now. Vanessa, are officials working on this issue, and what are they saying? I talked to Rodrigo Espinosa. He's the county supervisor who represents Planada. And he said this is something he is really worried about. And it's going to come down to philanthropic money. So he's been trying to use his influence to secure more of that. I also talked to folks in Senator Esmeralda Soria's office, and they told me the same thing. They've leaned on companies like Lowe's and Pepsi and Walgreens to get things like gift cards or basic supplies out. And what's next for people like Eduardo Rufino and Esmeralda? In Eduardo's case, if he does file a claim with FEMA through one of his kids, an inspector will go out to the house and assess the damage and get back to him about what kind of help is available. Both of these families are staying in migrant farm worker housing temporarily while their landlords work on fixing the damage to their homes. But it's not clear how long that's going to take. That was Vanessa Rancaño with KQED News. Thanks, Vanessa. Thank you. Support for the California Report comes from the California Healthcare Foundation. Listening to Black Californians, a new study on how the healthcare system undermines their pursuit of good health. On the web at chcf.org slash LBCA. Paint Care. Now with 846 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. 
and Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, which bets early on exceptional people making the world better, on the web at SchmidtFutures.com. And that's the California Report for Monday, February 6th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Up ahead, National Native News looks at the Indian Child Welfare Act, a law that elicits strong feelings from supporters and opponents. In fact, it's currently being challenged before the U.S. Supreme Court with an opinion pending. More ahead on this edition of National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A bill that would codify provisions of the Indian Child Welfare Act has been approved by the South Dakota House Judiciary Committee on a vote of 9 to 3. The bill requires the Department of Social Services to make active efforts to prevent removal of Native children from Native families. ICWA currently requires that measure, but the federal law has been challenged before the U.S. Supreme Court with an opinion pending. According to online reports, 10 states have already enacted their own Indian child welfare statutes, and five states, including South Dakota, are considering bills this year. Victoria Wicks has this report. South Dakota State Representative Perry Poirier introduced House Bill 1168. She told the House committee that poverty underlies many of tribes' challenges and the vast majority of Native children removed from their homes are removed for neglect. Neglect can often look like poverty to some people. She said ICWA requires active efforts from states to keep Indigenous families together, but South Dakota law is largely silent. There's nothing in code that outlines active efforts. All it says is that the state must have due regard to ICWA. The Department of Social Services was represented at the hearing by General Counsel Jeremy Lippert. He noted that the U.S. Supreme Court is currently deliberating the constitutionality of ICWA, and when its opinion comes out, the state might have to recalibrate. We may very well have a complex array of specific portions of the federal statute that stand or fall, to which the state's courts, legislature, and agencies will have to respond. After witnesses testified, Representative Tim Reich spoke in favor of the bill. The former longtime Secretary of Corrections said South Dakota's prison population, both male and female, is disproportionately Native. I'm not convinced that passage of this bill is going to change anything in a huge way, but I think we've got to try everything we can. The committee approved the bill, and it now goes to the full House. For National Native News, I'm Victoria Wicks in Rapid City, South Dakota. Over the course of seven days, Team Alaska won 145 medals from the Arctic Winter Games in Canada, 58 gold, 44 silver, and 43 bronze. Alaska was second in the overall standings behind the Yukon Territories. Two 18-year-old Alaska natives were in a tie for racking up the most gold for Team Alaska. Colton James Paul from Kipnuk and Parker Benjamin Kennick of Nome each won five medals. Both competed in Arctic Sports, a competition that features native games traditionally used to sharpen survival skills. Kennick says this was his first Arctic Winter Games, so he did not expect to do very well, but says the high level of international competition plus encouragement inspired him to do his best. With old friends, new friends, an audience, it'll lift you up. And you'll typically break your own records and surprise yourself, put on a show for everybody, have fun all around. It's nice to watch everybody do their best and 
and break their own records. Closing ceremonies were held Saturday. The games will take place in Alaska next year. The Yorok tribe is sponsoring a day at the state capitol in California on Tuesday in efforts to reduce violence against Native Americans. Tribal leaders, advocates, families, and state lawmakers are gathering in Sacramento for the first Missing and Murdered Indigenous People Day. They'll address issues involving MMIP, including advocating for bills involving public safety and protections for foster youth. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This Valentine's Day, you can give all your sweethearts truly unique gifts from SweetgrassTradingCo.com, a Ho-Chunk Inc. company where you can choose from a variety of food, beauty, and wellness items from tribes across Turtle Island. Ho-Chunk Inc. supports this show. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Now let's take a look at your local news. Authorities say a man was arrested after a 10-year-old boy was shot and killed during a dispute Sunday evening in Yuba County. The Yuba County Sheriff's Office says deputies responded around 7.40 p.m. following reports of shots fired in the area of Alicia Avenue in Olivehurst. A boy was found inside a home with a single gunshot wound and transported to a hospital where he was pronounced dead. A suspect, identified as 31-year-old Juan Martin Ortiz of Olivehurst, was arrested in connection with the shooting. Ortiz was booked into the Yuba County Jail on charges of homicide, shooting at an inhabited dwelling, and possession of a firearm and ammunition by a felon. A news release from the sheriff's office describes the shooting as a, quote, dispute among families, but says no other details regarding the circumstances surrounding the incident are immediately available. Homicide detectives continue to actively investigate the shooting. This reported by the Sacramento Bee. On Saturday night, the Miners Foundry hosted the 121st Annual Installation and Awards Ceremony for the Nevada City Chamber of Commerce. The annual awards honor businesses, organizations, and individuals who have made significant contributions to the Nevada City community, whether this be through their time, actions, talents, or dedication. Some of the ceremony winners include Amanda Ashley, also known as Miss Moth, who was the recipient of the Dr. Leland and Sally Lewis Visual Arts Award. She's a traditional sign painter and gold leaf gilder. Walking along Broad Street in downtown Nevada City, you'll see much of her work, including the National Hotel's windows and signs. Kimberly Ewing received the Dr. Leland and Sally Lewis Performing Arts Award. Fair on the Peach Leaves, Local Americana Blues, and Rock and Country Band were the recipient of the Live Music Award. Pharaoh and the Peach Leaves are mainstays on Nevada County stages and played at KVMR's Holiday Hoedown. 
The Business of the Year Award went to Three Forks Bakery and Brewery, and Communal Cafe received the new Business of the Year Award. You can see a full list of Saturday evening's winners on Ubinet's website. Turning our attention to your local weather forecast from the National Weather Service. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight clear with a low around 35 degrees. Tuesday, areas of frost before 10 a.m., otherwise mostly sunny with a high near 54. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight mostly clear with a low around 15 degrees. Tuesday, mostly sunny with a high near 45. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight mostly clear with a low around 36 degrees. Tuesday, patchy frost between 8 and 9 a.m., otherwise mostly sunny with a high near 58. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Coming up, a special edition of Soups On, with KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza and intern news producer Julia Jem. The two walk through the most pressing topics the Board of Supervisors covered throughout their three-day workshop. These include broadband, emergency preparedness, housing and homelessness, cannabis, and law enforcement. All the details up ahead. On January 25th, 26th, and 27th, the Board of Supervisors of Nevada County met for a special workshop. Our resident public meeting expert, Julia Jem, joining me now. Hi, Julia. Hi. So, Julia, this was a Board of Supervisors workshop. It was not a regular meeting, right? Yeah. This was a three-day special meeting, is what they were calling it. Um, and it's more about planning and county overviews. Uh, no action is taken, so they don't vote on anything. Before we started, you and I were just briefly discussing the differences between this and a regular meeting. Let's talk about those now. What are the differences? So public comment functions differently in workshops than it does in regular meetings. Uh, In regular meetings, the public is given a 30-minute window for comment with three minutes for each person, although I've seen it go longer than 30 minutes if there's a lot of people talking about one subject. And another thing about public comment that's specific to regular meetings is that they can only pertain to topics not on the agenda. You're saying that in a typical meeting, if you want to address the board You can do so as long as it's not something that's planned to be discussed. Yes. And that's different from this workshop. Yes. Tell me about that. So for these workshops, public comment can only be related to topics that are on the agenda for any of the three days. And another thing to note is that the public comment only occurs on day one of the workshops. Oh, okay. So day one, public commentary happened, and after that, they were just working through the agenda. Yeah. Okay, so then let's get into it. Let's talk about some of the things that they discussed in that workshop. And I know that they covered a lot. I mean, three days is a lot to cover. But give me the most interesting things to you that they covered. I thought that emergency preparedness, housing and homelessness, cannabis, law enforcement, and broadband were all pretty interesting subjects. I can get down with that. So why don't we take those one at a time? What did you learn in regard to how the county is preparing for emergencies? Well, first they did a recap of the 2022 fire season, and they also talked about CAL FIRE's preparedness levels for 2023. They predict that there will be normal staffing levels. Um, There's some potential budget impact with the $22 billion state deficit. Also, all 13 
S-70i Blackhawks will be in service by the end of 2023, four of which will be 24-hour bases. So it sounds like all in all, crew levels are going to be up to snuff. There's helicopters that are going to be in the air. Yeah. Okay. Um, You said housing and homelessness. This is something that a lot of people in our community are keeping an eye on. How did that go? Well, they discussed some of the active projects in Nevada County, which include Empire Mine Courtyard, the Ranch House Project, Lone Oak Phase 2, Pacific Crest Commons, Cameo Drive Apartments, and some of the the housing units that have already been built, like Brunswick Commons, Cashins Field. So you mentioned cannabis. Yeah, they did sort of a cannabis update. A lot of it was just going over things that have happened, not so much setting many goals for the future. They talked about the enforcement changes that were adopted on June 14th of 2022 and permitting changes adopted on January 10th of 2023. Because there's a lot of things that did change last year yeah. and at the beginning of this year in regards to cannabis. And we've covered those in other segments. Now, one of the things that I thought was interesting was the there's that law enforcement training center. Is that is that fair to call it that? Yeah, they were calling it a training facility. So this is an existing building that they're converting for training. Yeah, it's a vacant juvenile hall. Is this like tactical training? It seemed that way based off of what they were saying. They weren't giving tons of details in that regard, but yeah, it seemed that way. Wow, I guess we're going to have to follow up on that. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. And then you mentioned broadband. We don't have great broadband here, or it's spotty, right? There are places here in the county where it's really great and fast and others where it's not. So I'm really interested to hear what they talked about in that regard. Yeah, they, they discussed funding, which kind of ties into what they, they talked about next, which was trends impacting broadband. Things like the California Advanced Service Fund changes, so changes to that fund, federal and state service map data quality, industry supply chain and labor, digital equity requirements, things that might be affecting broadband. And they also talked about their 2023 potential board objectives regarding broadband. And what were those? Can you share some? I can share some bullet points. Um, They included completing the Internet Service Provider Toolkit, managing county-funded grants programs, implementing the county's broadband strategy, engaging and informing the community, seeking grant funding, and establishing partnerships. I'm glad that that was a major topic. That's something that's really important. And I'm looking forward to seeing what changes in 2023. So before we wrap up this segment, though, there is another regular meeting coming up, right? Yeah, there's a regular meeting scheduled for February 7th. And you're going to be covering it? I will be. Okay. Well, then I guess we'll talk again at that point. Julia, thanks for sitting through three days of those meetings and distilling that for the rest of us. My pleasure. That's our newscast for Monday, February 6th. Visit us online at kvmr.org and connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. KVMR gets support from generous listeners like you and Best Friends Animal Clinic on Highway 174, Grass Valley, where doctors Melanie Curtis, Susan Klopfer, and staff provide comprehensive veterinary care for family dogs and cats. Information at bestfriends-animalclinic.com. And Dignity Health, providing a comprehensive range of medical expertise with doctors and hospitals focused on diagnosis and treatment. 
from minor health concerns to more complex conditions. Details at dignityhealth.org slash rlocations. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. As always, thanks for tuning in. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off. Join us Tuesday at 6 for another edition of the KVMR Evening News. Thank you.